All right. Juan Crucier is my guest today. You may remember him as the bassist for Rat. And he played with Dawkin and Quiet Riot, as well as his own band he fronted called Liquid Sunday. He does a lot of producing for bands as well. So we're going to talk about that, plus the new Rat box set that just came out, unreleased Rat songs, some great stories from back in the day, and more coming right up. Uh, wait, hold on a second. Uh, I'm getting word for this podcast to continue. You actually have to subscribe wherever you're watching or listening. And if you're on YouTube, you have to like the video. If you're on an audio podcast, you have to give us a rating or review. I guess that's some new thing that they require now. I don't know. I don't make the rules, but you better comply because it's part of that user agreement that you signed. Remember when you accepted the terms of the agreement of the app? So make sure you subscribe to the show and give us a like, rating, or review. Thank you. You're a total pro. So, well, um, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Even with doing interviews, like back in the day, I'm assuming that you did a lot of interviews, like radio and stuff. Not obviously podcasts in the '80s, but does management like give you coaching on how to do interviews or what to say? No, not at all. You you just sort of got a knack for it after a while or or you didn't. You know, you either had a sort of a a way of saying things and you know, back in in the day, things were really different, right? You know, so there'd be a lot of hype around playing uh, you know, a certain arena in town and you just be, you know, dialing into a a DJ on the air live. Um, someone that you'd never spoken with or knew very little about. And you were just trying to sort of deal with what was thrown at you, you know, in real time. So you had to sort of really, um, you know, hit the ground running and uh, and make sure that you, you know, said the right thing about the show and, you know, what was currently happening and how the tour was going and so forth. So, you know, things have changed a lot with the uh, with the Internet, obviously. Yeah, because now you can research the interviewer and know, like, well, even decide, like, like with this, like, you could you could look me up and say, oh, I do want to do this interview, or I don't. I mean, you could look all the information about me, you know, what you can watch interviews and things like. But where back in the day, you just, like you said, you're going in blind. You don't know what this radio guy is going to be like. Yeah, totally. You were by the seat of your pants, and in fact, you know, even nowadays, you know, when I when I embark upon something, you know, I I sometimes forget. Hey, I could look something up that I'm. Um, not sure about, you know, I mean, I can look up literally where we were in 1985 on July 20th, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that uh, is so crazy. crazy. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Do you remember stuff like that? Like, cause there's a site called, um, I, I think it's like concert history or something. And you can go through rat and see every show. I mean, I don't know, it might not be a hundred percent accurate, but it's pretty accurate, and you can look and see the dates and who you played with and the venue. I mean, do you look at some of those and and just go, is it all kind of a blur? No, you know what? Um, I did, in fact, look at that site, and I looked for a particular show that we did, um, uh, and it wasn't, as you said, it wasn't a hundred percent accurate, but it was close. You know, so uh, I'm not sure they may be pulse. It may be old pole star information, hmm. um, you know, but a lot of the things have changed just like back in the day uh, when we first started, you had um, a lot of regional promoters 
So you had a certain promoter in Texas and a different promoter in Oklahoma and, you know, a, a pr promoter that handled the, the Northeast. And then eventually over time, they all kind of came together and they started taking up larger territories. So there were fewer mm. promoters handling larger swaths of the country, if you will. And so, you know, it's it was sort of an evolution and and uh, interesting. Yeah, we have a guy here. Uh, you probably know Danny Zalisco. He's Arizona and he wrote a book and he, uh, you know, he's he does a lot of that. And I think it's the same thing. He started in Arizona and I think he's gotten I think he's maybe doing Vegas now and other territories. But yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting business because you kind of, the concert promoters, they kind of take the risk. Right. And they they front the money for the show and then hope that they make enough on the tickets. That's right. It's a risky business. And, you know, uh, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you can really win big. You know, you have someone that is big. I mean, it's easy to name big bands, right? So you have a big guy coming through and, you know, everything's great. The arena's sold out. You know, everything's just going smoothly. And then you have riskier groups or, you know, riskier packages of bands. And, uh, you know, over the years um, and getting to know some of the promoters, um, I realized that, wow, it, it is a really risky business because they had uh, certain uh, packages that would come through and just weren't doing the numbers. It just wasn't translating, you know? Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, a a gamble. That's for sure. Yeah. Cause now wasn't remind me, didn't you guys, the last tour you did that one, did, I don't know if it lost money, but it didn't perform to expectations, right? Was it you and LA guns? I want to say, or you know, we had we had uh, several different groups that that came on to the last tour, the Detonator tour. Yeah, and we had, uh, for example, we had a uh, a jam in the beginning um, that was just sort of a an impromptu uh, contraband. The record was called, and um, we had Tracy Guns and Michael Schenker and um, Richard Black was the singer. And yeah, Bobby I remember that. And then Ann Peter, uh, Cher Peterson, excuse me, um, decided for whatever reason um, that she couldn't participate. So I, I filled in for her and we did, just did a couple songs at the beginning of the show. Uh, and then the there were different bands that opened up throughout the tour. Um, so that was during a transitory period where um, a lot of uh, name acts uh, were not producing the numbers in the arenas. And I remember hearing about uh, the Omni Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. It was David Lee Roth. Uh, I believe it was Cinderella and a couple other bands. And um, we had found out that the numbers re were really low. Uh, and it was concerning because, um, you know, David Lee Roth was huge and, you know, Van Halen. And sure. I mean, you know, it doesn't get much better, right? You know. So uh, that was of concern, and it was really sort of a, a shift in the music industry from, you know, the hard rock bands that were on MTV throughout the 80s to um, what was typically so often referred to as, uh, you know, the Nirvana effect, you know, and um, so it was a really interesting time to tour, and, um, you know, uh, there were territories that were strong. There were some territories that were weaker and, you know, promoters took it upon themselves to either do the shows or, you know, bow out. 
Um, and so it was challenging, but it was very, you know, at the same time, we had a great time. It was a very great, great tour, uh, very enjoyable. Um, and so, you know, it, that's sort of the live industry. It, it's sort of an evolution. It's constantly evolving, you know, to where it is today, obviously. Um, you know, I, I read an article recently about how more and more venues are now taking a cut of the merch. You know, I've heard that too. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. That wasn't a thing back in the eighties. That would, you know, you wouldn't have ever thought that in the eighties. And yeah. in fact, a lot of those uh, deals, just the, the way the business was conducted was very, very different. Again, coming back to the internet effect, um, there weren't a lot of ways to verify things. So, you know, you trusted the, the sheets of papers with mm. the counts handwritten, you know, you had no way of really confirming that or you know cross-checking it uh not always but sometimes you didn't have a way to confirm it you know you had to make sure that well i guess there was a lot of trust involved right yeah what is your relationship you mentioned the seattle bands what was your relationship did you guys have i forget if you guys had any of those seattle bands open for you or if you were friends with any of those guys uh before they they blew up you know it was a different genre and so all of a sudden, I remember, you know, I was producing groups early on. And what I would do is I would find bands or I'd get recommended a band and I would, um, you know, work with them. And then I would eventually record them and produce a demo and take it to record companies. And I remember going to um, to a record company that is well known and them just being just totally close to the idea of another 80s type of arena rock. Uh, they were really searching for something out of the Seattle area. And it was just like, wow, really? It, you're not going to really listen to the band and hear the songs and kind of go see them maybe, come to a rehearsal? It's just no, you know. So I that was a sort of startling, unexpected and uh, so I consider it sort of like fishing in a certain pond and all of a sudden, you know, you, you come to the conclusion, you know, there's no big fish here anymore. Mm. Let's go to another pond. So anything that was in that previous pond is just ruled out, hmm. which is unfortunate for a lot of bands. You know, a lot of people got overlooked because of that. No, absolutely. But, you know, there was because the, there was some some good 90s bands that weren't necessarily grunge. But we're right. more just classic, like Brother Kane. I thought that was a great kind of 90s, uh, not necessarily grunge band. I mean, they were more just hard, classic hard rock. Maybe they weren't hair metal, but I mean, they were somewhat successful. And I thought yeah. they were great. Yeah. You know, one thing to note is back in during that era, record company backing was extremely important. And that's what I'm saying. Mm. No matter what the talent level of the group truly was, right. if you didn't have that record company backing, you were dead in the water. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you were just, you, you were in the club circuit if you were lucky, you know. So to, as you were originally saying, you know, the bands that opened up for us during the last tour, um, those were bands that the record company was supporting. They had an investment in them. Um, they had high hopes. They were working radio. You know, yeah. remember, there was a, a couple books, I believe, that came out about payola, 
with right. radio stations back in the day. And uh, all the little stories about, you know, certain program directors that would get, you know, favors and whatnot. It was a very competitive business for the that radio time, you know. And if you didn't have that, it was like you never put a record out. Right. So do you think um, that, that in a way that's good with the way that things are set up now? Because anybody can upload music to YouTube or, or Spotify. You don't need a radio station. But the problem is anybody can do it. So it's just a flooded market now. It's hard to find the good stuff. There is a lot of great stuff out there. You're spot on. There is a lot of great stuff out there. The problem is waiting through all sorts of demos from some you know, some guy that's just learning how to play. Maybe, uh, you know, I don't want to you know, uh, denigrate anyone, but you know, there, there's uh, just so much to get through that it's really hard to find things that, that uh, you can listen to that, you know, maybe, maybe within the style that you're looking for. So the record company did serve a purpose. It's often overlooked. They would sort of filter out a lot of the groups that maybe weren't ready to be, you know, polite about it. And they would give you the groups that were the strongest in that genre. So that would be a great time-saving um, sort of um, service. Uh, but with that comes, you know, the fact that you would often not find those little gems that maybe you would have normally have found. Yeah. And then some bands, I felt like it seemed like they were ready. They'd get signed to a major label and they just they never got as big as maybe they should have. Like, I mean, I think of a band like like King's X. I feel like, why didn't they get huge? I mean, they're so beloved among other musicians, but they didn't oh, get yeah. to that next level, I don't think. You're, you're so right. You know what? It, it It's such an unfair business. So many things have to go right. Not only do you have to have it together, you have to be a great songwriter. You have to be a great player. You have to be a great performer. But even with all those things, operating you know on all cylinders if one of the links in the chain doesn't work it's a done deal you know so a lot of bands never got a fair shake and it's very unfortunate and i agree with you about king's x a fantastic band you know yeah. so talented just uh, you know i mean incredible so you know um why aren't they you know huge and and it's just complicated and that's the nature of the business. And then you have other bands that you might think, you know, uh, yeah, I've heard that song a bunch of times. It's a good pop song, but you know, there's not a lot of musical, maybe depth or whatever. Um, so there, there's a lot of variables that can really affect a band's trajectory. No, absolutely. It's interesting that you somehow magically were in, uh, you know, you were in quiet riot, Dawkin and rat. I mean, I feel like that's like amazing that you were able to just kind of <laughs> shift around and you didn't have any like duds. You had three big hit bands that you got to be a part of. And then obviously you stayed with rat the longest, but that's pretty amazing. Like the, well, the, the odds of that. <laughs> you know what? Again, uh, you know, when you, when I think about the late mid seventies uh, onward, um, there was a real shift in music. Um, I was really good friends with a guy, uh, Keith Morris, from a band called Black Flag and Circle Jerks and so forth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we lived in Redondo and Redondo Beach, California. And um, 
you know, he was just, you know, had his finger on the pulse of what was happening at the time with bands like the Sex Pistols, the Ramones, you know, and and all that. And and then came New Wave. And of course, we had disco. Let's not forget disco. Right. So there were a lot of things that were changing. And as a musician, the reason I'm saying all this as a musician, you sort of wanted to have your pulse on what was going on and how would that affect me and where I want to get to. And you you networked, you networked a lot and you didn't have the Internet. You certainly didn't have cell phones. You had to do a lot of cold calling, you know, on numbers that you didn't even know if they were the right numbers, trying to find mm -hmm. um, maybe a connection. And so in doing that, um, there was a natural scene happening in Hollywood. And uh, I was privy to it early on because I have an older brother, a couple older brothers, but one of them in particular was playing a lot in Hollywood um, with various bands. And so I got an early introduction to it. And, uh, you know, as a player, you're always trying to ascend. You're always trying to find a, a, a great situation to be in or be a part of or help out with. And so throughout that, I, I just started, you know, kind of knowing what groups were doing, you know, headlining and doing well and who was in those groups and meeting people. And, and it was just sort of a natural progression. So it was really an enjoyable time. There was a lot of um, excitement and uh, it was a, a, a common denominator was the dream of making it to the point of playing in a big arena right yeah i love that because like you started you start you're playing the violin in like second grade and yeah. then you go from like that time before you guys make it that's is that that's a really exciting time like how 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 much struggle did you have to go through like i mean because rat was pretty big even before they got signed they were big on the, the strip or whatever right i mean they were still playing pretty big venues and things and same with Dawkin. Yeah, look, you know, I mean, I remember one one gig that just came to mind as you were speaking. Um, we played this. Uh, it was a movie theater in Hermosa Beach with Rat. And, um, uh, you know, there were a few bands and, and we were one of them and we got out and we played and the place was packed because it wasn't that big. It was a movie theater. Right. And um, so after that, we're we're packing our equipment in the alley next to the movie theater. And um, so we sent one of our guys to go get the pay. And uh, he's coming back with like a, a case of beer. right? <laughs> and we go, all right, you got you got some beer. That's great. Now we got something to drink when we go to rehearsal to dump our equipment off. Right. And we're all going basically, OK, so where's the money? And, and he pulls out like what was a, approximately $13 and 50 cents. And we said, well, what's that? He goes, yeah, that's our pay. He goes, go, no, are you kidding me? $13. We just played for a sold out crowd and we get $13 in a case of beer. And unfortunately that was it. There was really not much you could do back in those days. You know, you weren't about to take a promoter to court. You know, yeah, yeah. So things are really kind of dicey in many ways, but you know, you you sort of struggled, but you you sort of you know figured it out after a while, you know. Um, and and it was important to to play the the popular venues of the time. There was the Country Club and the Starwood and the mm -hmm. Whiskey, of course, and the Roxy and the Troubadour, and but there were a lot of other places uh, in Orange County, you know, throughout the Valley and so forth. So. 
you know, we looked at everything as an opportunity to further the cause. And um, so, but it's interesting because, yeah, there were gigs like that where you, you, you wouldn't get paid. <laughs> I've heard, yeah, I've heard too many stories like that. It's just upsetting. But yeah, I think it's different with the internet because now you could just tweet that or something and then go viral and everybody attacks this club owner, which would be a good thing, right? <laughs> oh, listen, it's a completely different world now. There, there, There's just, you know, um, I, I never thought I'd sort of think, you know, of those days as like, you know, so distant. Um, and technology has really brought about a, a, just a seismic shift in the industry in many ways, as you were saying, you know, some good and some not so good, you know, uh, you know, uh, arenas, you know, now, you know, wanting or requiring or asking for things that they would have never asked for in the past, you know. So you sort of have to adapt, right? You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, and that's, what's cool is that there was a resurgence. Like, I mean, the, the, the music of the eighties kind of struggled for a little while, but then it came back yeah. and now it's been around for, for decades. I mean, it's, it's still going strong. I know you guys aren't touring currently, but a lot of bands of that era are, and you guys recently did not that many years ago. So, I mean, it's exciting that we could still see this music and still hear it. And then obviously you got the box set now that's out and that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, the box set's terrific. You know, it it's uh if you're gonna pick up something, a best of, it's really the one to get because you've got the five Atlantic records on vinyl, and they were remastered by uh, a gentleman named Andy Pierce, who does you know a, a huge amount of remastering. I didn't realize there were that many records <laughs> being remastered, but um I heard some of the remasterings that he did and he did an excellent job. And to put it in, in layman's terms, he sort of brought out the guitars more. Okay. Um, and the fact that you're printing onto to vinyl brings out the low end a little more. You know, that's one of the things that we lost in the, the digital age with CDs. A lot of times you'd run home and you put on the Led Zeppelin record that you had on vinyl, but it was all scratched up. So now you had a perfect CD copy. But all of a sudden, your stereo, uh, back in the day, we used stereos, you know, um, your stereo sounded different. The low and the frequencies were different, you know. Uh, and at first, they didn't really know what to do with digital. So they just sort of transferred it and hoped for the best. And some records sounded good and some not so good. So in remastering this time around, um, going to vinyl, it's actually different sounding from the original records. So mm. the, the listener will hear things that he maybe wouldn't have, he or she maybe wouldn't have heard before uh, or been aware of before. So it's really a cool package. And there's some extra things in there. Like um, there's a, a backstage pass that we actually used back in the day, uh, a, a pick. Uh, there's also a booklet that um, we all contributed pictures to uh, that are pictures that um, are from personal archives. And so there's, it's pretty, it's a pretty neat little package. I highly yeah, recommend there, You said the vinyl, but isn't there a CD version too? Yeah, there is. And, and of course, you know, you could always, you know, for convenience, you know, um, you know, obviously pick that up it, and, you know, Hey, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Believe me. But that's I, remastered as well, right? It is. It okay. is. So the difference, though, being with analog, and, you know, I don't know if, if you've noticed or maybe talked to other people about it, there's sort of been a resurgence in vinyl. Oh, yeah. 
you know, and, and in fact, I got a turntable uh, a few years ago that was really cool because it's got a USB port on it. Right. Oh, that's so cool. I, I can literally plug it into my computer and run it through my computer speakers where before most turntables were strictly analog and you'd have to sort of get a converter or maybe, right. you know, a sound card to adapt. And, you know, okay. you had to sort of go through a couple hoops. So, um, you know, um, it just depends on, you know, what type of audio listener you are. Some audiophiles, purists really love vinyl um, for its audio qualities and characteristics. It's very musical, mm-hmm. you know. But again, yeah, you can pick up the CD version of it. And um, it's not the, the big box set, but it's certainly uh, a great listen. And those five records are, uh, you know, um, very interesting and, and very, for, you know, me and I hope others, very enjoyable. Yeah. What emotions does that, seeing this box set and looking back on those five albums, what emotions come up? I'm assuming pride has got to be one of them. You know what? Um, we honestly worked really, really hard and forgive me. The phone is, is on. I, pardon me. I can, I can't reach it right now and I don't want to get out from here. So it'll (laughs) ring. But no, you know, um, we worked very, very hard. And in those days, uh, a band like rat, uh, we basically had the mindset of it was do or die. I mean, our lives depended on the records that we were recording if they weren't successful the whole thing became a would become a failure you know so um we we did the best that we could with uh, at the with the in that moment in time and with the tools that we had you know it's easy to forget how things were so different back then you know a band going into a recording studio Gaining recording experience was very difficult because studios were so expensive that they were just priced out of the equation, you know, for bands uh, without record company support. So, um, you know, and then once you got in the studio, it was, hey, we got X amount of time to get all of this accomplished. Mm. So there's not going to be, let me think about it. Let me try it this way. Let me change the melody line maybe we should shorten up the verse there wasn't none of that you were lucky if you got your songs recorded and you got <clears throat> most of the mistakes repaired you know right so, yeah so you know we're talking about a, a a totally different approach and a totally different headspace back then and that's reflected on those records that we did um and of course recording now is just so so different Yeah. Well, and just the, I feel like a big part of that was, uh, you know, today you look at promotion, everything's social media, but back then it was like grassroots. Like I read Piercy's book, which was fascinating read. And just, I love the, you know, the whole, the stories about the flyering and stuff and just, you know, scrounging to get these gigs and promote the band. I mean, cause there's so many other bands that are trying to do the same thing. Somehow you guys rose up above them all and became one of the best bands of all time. Well, you know, interesting um, chemistry and dynamic that occurred in RAT. Um, I'm familiar with band dynamic um, extensively because I've produced and engineered a lot of bands from my studio. Mm-hmm. So when you see how other bands work in the studio, you start understanding what I consider to be band psychology. Mm. And every band has 
some form of band psychology that it operates by or, you know, is subjected to depending on if you're on the giving or receiving end. Right. So, you know, um, Rat had a a chain of events that occurred that uh, brought forth a lineup that made it a very formidable uh, opponent uh, for other bands. And, um, you know, we were hungry, young, uh, on a mission, and had absolutely nothing to lose. So we had everything to gain, you know. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting because as the record companies had such a grip on the industry <clears throat> and pro- concert promoters, as we were saying earlier, were like the second tier of that, um, you know, you there was no way around that, you know. Uh, so uh, fast forward to today, and it's a vastly different industry. Um, you have various, um, well, you have many more categories uh, and subcategories of styles of bands and music. Um, you know, back in the day, you had, you know, hard rock, metal, pop, you know, um, and then you had like the DeFranco family, right? <laughs> you know, Kitty Rock. You know, so there weren't that many genres, um, uh, although, of course, you know, that's taken into account punk rock and new wave. But these things were evolving. And uh, so it was a really interesting time. And and basically the recording end of it, um, you know, if you were to, to get into a studio, that was a huge accomplishment in and of itself. Right. Right. Well, so when you talk about band psychology. Uh, explain this to me because I, I always find this fascinating. I know like I had Brian Wheat from Tesla on and he was talking about, you know, there, he was telling me how Tesla had a lot of, he called them discussions, but it sounded like there was a lot of fighting in, you know, but it was all to make the band better because they all cared so much. And I feel like that's got to be the same with rat is one of the things that made them great. People can talk about the fighting in band fighting, but it's that you all <laughs> cared. If everyone was apathetic, I don't think the band would have been as great. So don't you need some of that? passion you just got to harness it isn't that kind of how bands become great yeah look it's a it's a collective right so um as they say often you know you're only as strong as your weakest link okay Hmm. so uh there's also a vision involved you know where does the band want to go and how does the band plan on getting there and then there are extracurricular issues you know um is everybody in of sound mind does somebody have a dependency issue or you know should somebody have a dependency issue (laughs) but so there's a lot of factors that um that enter into it and and basically equate how effective a band can be working as a unit oftentimes in groups there are certain people that will be sort of the catalyst of the ideas that come forth and and are uh, you know, become the band's output, if you will. Uh, in other words, songwriters. Mm-hmm. And um, depending on how smoothly that goes and what the understanding is and the type of communication you have within that structure determines how effective you can be. Of course, that's all um, predicated upon how talented you are, right? Right. True. You yeah. can have all the communication in the world if you can't write a hit song or you can't effectively communicate or cooperate. If you're not willing to cooperate, you're sabotaging the potential of the group to run at its maximum. So 
you know, a lot of times, like you were saying, Brian, we talked about discussions and, you know, you don't want to let the outside world, you know, know, you know, every single detail. It's just not necessary. You know, there's a certain amount of privacy that's required and it's art. That's the other factor in art. You can look at something and go, oh, that's a horrible painting. But another person might look at it and go, that's a Picasso, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of it is subjective. And, um, you know, uh, so it takes a lot to really create a band that's effective. And interestingly enough, um, isn't it interesting how certain bands have sustained their success at this point um, that started out with humble beginnings, but the unit has managed to move forward and, and, you know, deal with adversity and you know and 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 move on and sustain a long uh and and happy career so you never know it's a big gamble and you know the average life of a band isn't that long uh seems like nowadays bands last a little longer but um you know um a lot of bands just you know never really reach the full potential and it's difficult and that's the band psychology part of that is an interesting aspect that um, I don't think it's often talked about. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. So with your role in the band on those records, were you typically like bringing songs or was it like Stephen and Warren would kind of have a song and then you kind of like would, you know, make a part of it, like the hook or the chorus or something, or what was your, in terms of songwriting, what did you do? You know, uh, I've been writing songs for a really long time. Um, It's something that I started doing early on. Uh, Again, thanks to my older brother, Tom, and Louie, both of my older brothers. And I have a younger brother named Rick, who's a great drummer. We're all musicians. We come from a musical family. My my father was a great singer. Uh, And so writing songs was something that was just um, as important as being able to play your instrument. So in in the rat um, situation, uh, I would bring in finished songs. Um, I'd demo them up myself. I'd bring them in. I brought in lack of communication, for example, completely finished. Nothing left to the imagination. Lyrics too Uh, or just the music? All of it. Words, lyrics, melodies, music, the beat, the tempo, the whole thing. I play everything on it. So, unfortunately, But let me correct myself on a song like Lack of Communication. Back then, I was recording on a four track machine, a a, a Tascam 244 Porta Studio. And so uh, you had to be really careful how you bounced tracks. So on Lack of Communication, my last count, uh, I had to record it twice, actually, because I wore out the tape. It was on cassette tape. So to make a long story short, you had to bounce um, within the tracks to be able to layer all the parts that you wanted to hear. So it became very difficult. And often the actual music was mono uh, and you would have the vocal layerings and there was no going back. Once you bounced it and you erased those other tracks that you bounced from, you couldn't go back and fix it. So you had to be really careful. It was a painstaking um, task. And so Getting back to Rat, um, you know, there were there was no set way of doing things. A lot of times the band would work up music and then we would address the lyrics and melodies later. 
Uh, in Rat, interestingly enough, uh, there are two singers in the group. That's what made us really kind of different from maybe some of the other hard rock metal bands. Um, I had always sung lead in most of my bands. Uh, when I was in Dawkin, Don Dawkin and I would share lead vocals. Um, and so in Rat, we had a situation where Stephen and I were the main singers of the group. Uh, in those early records, uh, you know, I sang all the backgrounds <clears throat> uh, with the producer uh, uh, next to me or behind me, depending on how the vocal blend needed to be. And uh, we would just layer the background parts. Uh, we do the the mids and then we do the high parts, maybe add a lower layer, for example. But it would just be us stacking those parts together. Um, and uh, so there were really several different ways of approaching songs. There was no set way. Um, and okay. so, yeah, that's, you know. So like with lack of communication, you sang on it. Does Piercy sing it like you sang it or does he put his own spin on it and kind of change things? Well, you know, with that song, um, it was the melody was there. The the song idea was there. And um, in fact, what happened was on Out of the Cellar, after doing the EP, um, we didn't have that many songs left over. And when it came time to do Out of the Cellar, <clears throat> excuse me, we had eight songs. And so, um, you know, the producer was going, well, you guys got anything else? And so um, I brought in the next day, I brought in um, <clears throat> a tape of several songs that I had been currently working on. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a little frog in my throat. And a couple of those songs were uh, She Wants Money. And the other song was, of course, Lack of Communication. So it was completely finished. It was done. The lyrics were done. Um, the melodies were done. The arrangement was there. And we literally did it uh, exactly as I had originally recorded it. And I had the tape, obviously. Um, and uh, so then uh, Stephen changed a couple lines and um, you know, just changed the words. And uh, and that was it. That's the way the song went down. Um, she Wants Money, the same thing. It was uh, the same arrangement that I had on my demo and uh, basically the same lyrics. Uh, Stephen changed a couple words in that as well. Um, so that's kind of how it worked at the time. You know, uh, again, you know, we were flying by the seat of our pants. We didn't have a whole lot of time mm -hmm. to, for example, it wasn't a, a situation where, you guys need to go write some more songs. We didn't have time for that. You know, we needed a couple more songs. We were making the record. Uh, the record deal was in the process of being put together. In fact, when we did Out of the Cellar, um, we hadn't even signed with Atlantic. So we were making the record and we hadn't really signed a record deal yet. <laughs> you know, wow. So, so it's yeah. Taking yeah. a risk then. Pardon me? It's taking a risk or was that, did the management front that money? No, you know, we, there was, you know, we knew the intent was there okay. and, and we had, uh, we had worked with uh, their producer, Bo Hill, mm -hmm. um, who was new at Atlantic. And of course, you know, back then, this was when Doug Morris had been promoted by Amit Erdogan to president of Atlantic records. And we were like the first band that he actually signed to the label. So, you know, everyone sort of had something to prove. So that worked well for us. But technically speaking, we were making the record without a record deal, you know? Wow. Well, yeah. So what, what was the, why did you guys go with, wasn't Bo Hill a little bit of a risk? 
because he had less experience. There was this other guy I thought that was supposed to produce it, Thomas Al Al Alum or something. Thomas James Alum. What was the yeah. story with that? Uh, look, there were a lot of producers that had made the records that we that we loved. You know, you, uh, you had Jack Douglas and and various other guys. I mean, you know, the list is long. Tom Allen being one of them. Uh, I believe he had worked with Judas Priest at the time, mm-hmm. uh, but there were many many producers whose records we we admired. And, and, you know, it's kind of like you hear a great record. And as a musician, you, you think to yourself, wow, I wish I could make my band sound like that, you know, if we were to make a record. So, yeah, we talked about Tom Allum. Uh, you know, there was Tom Worman. Um, there was Jack Douglas. Um, you know, uh, there were various other producers. Roy Thomas Baker was huge at the time. Was You know. Yeah. Again, you know, I'm I'm going back, you know, to the early 80s, so trying to remember, wait a minute, did this producer, you know, so, um, you know, we wanted to find somebody that would make the kind of record that we uh, looked up to and enjoyed and were fascinated by and, you know, and inspired by. And so um, in doing that, um, we also wanted to have a good relationship with a potential record company. So there were a lot of moving parts. And so we were introduced to Bo. He came to our rehearsal studio. And we, you know, we were polite and we established a working sort of, um, you know, introduction. And what we did was we went into the studio and we demoed a couple songs. And just to get a feel for each other, how would it go in the studio? What's your style like? What kind of sounds do you like? Uh, what would a record potentially sound like if we worked with you? And um, so we cut, uh, I believe it was three songs, you know, and we went into a nice studio, a village recorder in in uh, West L.A., uh, West L.A. Santa Monica. I think it's West L.A. And uh Santa Monica, either or. Anyway, so the bottom line is, uh, it was it worked. It worked. You know, Bo was um, very talented. Um, was a hands-on kind of guy. So he wasn't just a producer; he was an engineer as well. Uh, he was very musical. He was a keyboard player. Uh, he sang he the backup record. vocals too, right? With you? Yes, he did. He did the backup vocals with me, and. Um, you know, so it, it clicked, it worked. And yeah. so then after that, at that point, you know, we gave, you know, gave it the thumbs up and, uh, and then we get began what was going to be pre-production for the out of seller record. Okay. So I know this, uh, this box set, it's just, it's the original records. Uh, there's no demos or live tracks or bonus tracks. Um, but I, I know you guys released that collage record after you left that had some demos, but I found some songs on the internet. So tell me, are these rat songs or something? You could tell it's Piercy singing, but I don't know if it's a solo stuff. There's a song called fire me up. Is that a rat song? Is that, is that something you worked on? You remember it's that not, one? It's not something I worked on. And, uh, there, uh, you know, there's all sorts of things on the internet. There's a lot of people that, you know, took a, a, a little micro cassette to a concert and recorded it and, you know, sat, you know, uh, up in the bleachers of the loge, <laughs> you know. What about the song uh, "Running on Borrowed Time"? Is that? Do you remember that one? I I didn't have anything to do with that song either. So what about? Uh, well, this one I know you you talked about it, and I couldn't find it. You said there was a song that you guys did that was like a ballad called "Wishing Well." Tell me about that one. I couldn't find that anywhere. 
Yeah, that's uh, again, that's a song that I wrote and recorded by myself. And um, we were going to do it for uh, the Reach for the Sky record, but um, there was some difficulties. And um, so by the time that we let's just say we we righted the ship, um, there there were uh, songs that um, uh, that were kept off the record. So that was a song that I, I wrote. Uh, and um, actually, at that point, um, I was able to demo it a little more uh, in a little more detail, let's say. OK. Because I was using a 16-track machine, hmm. you know, so I was able to layer the overdubs. And actually, what's interesting in the demo of that song is I use an extensive amount of keyboards. Hmm. So the version that that Rat was doing was just sort of a stripped-down version without keyboards. Um, but at that point in time, we were changing producers. Uh, the band had been on the road a long time. There was a certain amount of uh, road burn and, um, uh, you know, some other issues that probably wouldn't be appropriate for me to touch on. So we we just did the best with what we had at that point and finished up the record. So, um, you know, Wishing Well is, uh, you know, it's a song that I, uh, I'm i proud of. Uh, you know, as a songwriter, if you if you write a lot, you you eventually sort of you know not just critique yourself but you come to understand when you've got something that's uh exceptional for you okay uh and oftentimes well, oftentimes it's hard to be objective but trying to be objective you know that there are some songs that stand out above others you know uh for what you typically do when you're writing a song and wishing well was one of those you know, it's just a unique point that I sort of um, came upon. It was an idea that sort of worked. Um, and it's a very positive song. It's a song literally saying, it literally says, no one can stop you. Okay. You know what you got to do. So give it a try. If you take your chances, you will find, and then it goes into the verse. Okay. Everyone has a dream to make into extremes. You just have to survive to tell, you know, I love it. Is there yeah. any plan to release some of these unreleased demos and uh, bootleg songs like this? This would be fun to hear. Yeah. Look, um, <laughs> okay. I have an extensive amount of demos that I've recorded over many, many years. And because I did them by myself, I had to do them with a drum machine. So, um, they're actually recorded pretty well for the tools that I had at the time. And I had to record everything myself because I really couldn't afford to pay somebody to come in, learn the song, play the song, you know, it was just too time, um, it, it, uh, consuming. So, um, I have a lot, uh, a large list of songs that are completely finished, uh, much like lack of communication and she wants money and so forth. So, um, I'm going to be addressing those songs and I'm going to be um, working on, of course, I'm a studio owner, long time. Um, uh, and so I'm going to be releasing uh, new music as time comes, you know, in the, in the near future. Um, I have an EP that I'm re um, doing right now and going to re-release it. So um, my output will increase and um, you know, I'm, 
I'm an artist. So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of factors that go into it, you know, because uh, in the music industry, there's a lot of things that work and a lot of things that don't work. And you want to try to do the right thing. And um, so the issue is I, I probably won't have the time or the energy to re-record many of these songs with a band. Uh, time will tell uh, because I continue to write. So most writers will tell you that they love the songs that they wrote most recently. Sure, you know. sure yeah. You know, but I don't want to ignore the past and ignore the history that um, I have as a writer and singer, a songwriter, if you will. So, yes, I want to release those things. And I think that eventually the demo of Wishing Well will eventually come out. Um, and I'm proud of those things. You know, I have to tell you, I worked so hard for so many years during the rat days. I was the guy that would literally bring two giant road cases full of recording equipment under the bus through our whole tour. So I had basically a recording studio in my hotel room. Okay. Wow. And, oh yeah. And believe me, our road crew, you know, wasn't very happy with me, but <laughs> You know, nowadays you can do most of this with a laptop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I still have those road cases. In fact, one of them sitting in my control room right now. And I had a, a slot for a keyboard. I had an amplifier, Super Champ, Fender Super Champ, that I would put in the back. I'd carry my guitar and bass. Of course, if I had my guitars and bass with me, basses with me. And I would have a mixing board. At first, it started with a four track. And then it grew to one other rack with a sliding four track um, because at first it was like I had to take out the four track. I had to take out the drum machine. I had, you know, like a. a this was every board. night in the hotel. Yeah, every night that I could, especially <laughs> on days off. And wow. so it grew over the tours. Yeah, I've never. Really so you were not like partying and going crazy. You were like working on the tour. Look. I, I like to enjoy, uh, you know, the, the times I wasn't, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, out of control. I wanted to, I knew that the cycle was tour, come home, catch your breath, write songs into the studio, make the videos back on tour, rinse and repeat. Right. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to be ahead of it. And, um, mm. so my studios to kind of complete the thought, my studios went from being portable which was like one big, big suitcase to being a vertical rack mounted um, thing that probably weighed in excess of 500 pounds. Okay. <laughs> to two of them, they called them the refrigerator and the freezer. And these things would come to my room and I would basically, I had a state of the art recording studio with a digital se computer sequencer and a mixing board, a 16 track analog machine keyboards, everything you would need, a drum machine, etc. And I would set these things up, um, you know, when I had time and was able to, a lot of times, you know, you're just, you're sleeping for five hours and you're off to the next city, you know, yeah. so you wouldn't have time to set anything up. But on the days off, I would set up my studio and track ideas. And, you know, there was some good ideas that came from him from those days, if you will, um, from those sessions. And, uh, one thing that was really interesting and, you know, just to kind of give you an idea of uh, effective usage, I guess, 
uh, was after we finished the Out of the Cellar tour, we took a vacation as a band and we went to Hawaii. And uh, we sort of thought it would not only be a, a great time to just cool off and reflect. You know, we'd just been on tour with Billy Squire and had done a lot of dates. And when Squire had days off, we'd play solo shows, not solo shows, but headlining club shows, hmm. you know. So we were really working really hard. You know, I remember stretches where we'd have 21 shows in a row with no days off. Okay. Our road crew was going, hey, I got to quit. I can't do this anymore. You know, so at the end of all that, we decided to take a vacation to Hawaii. And I brought at that point, I had one case. Okay. Because it was out of the cellar. So, you know, I set this up in in, uh, the hotel room that we had. We had these Really nice rooms right on the um, uh, on the beach. It was a private beach, and it was just really a nice time. And and I made it so uh, the guys could come over. We could work on stuff and and kind of come up with ideas. And one of the songs that we uh, originally demoed there was "Lay It Down," and uh, I just basically programmed the drum beat. You know the beat that is in the song, and um, we Warren and I um, were. He had had this riff for quite a long time, so we he didn't really know what direction to take it in. So we, I sort of worked with him on an arrangement and added a couple different parts um, th- that would sort of move the part that he had around. So using it as a verse and then using it as a chorus. And then using it as a, a tag or a bridge, what have you. So that was, for, as an example, that was one of the songs that came out of the um, the refrigerator, if you will. <laughs> That's interesting. Does that um, does that make a big difference location? Like when you think back of some of these songs, you're like, oh, I remember when I wrote that on the you know on the beach in Hawaii, or like I wrote this in a hotel in Cleveland, or like do those locations stick out when you write? No, <laughs> no, you know, really, it's really about. Um, the idea that you come up with <clears throat> and whether that flows naturally or not in songwriting. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, uh, thousands of people have said this, uh, you know, songs can come quickly or songs can take a long time, you know, uh, as an example, um, um, let me see, uh, scratch that itch. Okay. I wrote that song in about five to 10 minutes. <laughs> well, I love that it was just there. It, yeah. And then, oh, yeah. And then I'm going to go to this part. And then I can do this here. And, oh, wait, here's a lyrical idea. Here we go. You know, and boom, boom, boom. And it just flowed, you know. Um, <clears throat> so for me personally, since, as I said before, I would track everything myself. The ideas weren't the, the problem. It was like once I wrote a batch of songs, let's say I wrote six songs, then I had to track them. And that was way more time consuming most of the time than mm-hmm. it was um, actually writing the ideas. Okay. Yeah. You know, so uh, when you're a singer songwriter, you can sit down and, um, you know, look, uh, this is just me. I, I, I'm not judging anyone or laying out a, a, a standard, but I can basically um, catch a phrase or a word or something and, and work around that come up with a silly melody, you know, and, and just kind of build it into what will turn into eventually a song, you know, I mean, that's what songwriters do, right? Yeah. Well, you say like being objective, 
and you think like, okay, well, I think this is going to be a good song, but aren't sometimes you guys wrong? Like you think like, oh, this is like, so like, you know, a song that you write in five or 10 minutes, this is just kind of a throwaway song. And then that becomes like the bigger hit. Absolutely. Oftentimes when you go in the studio, first of all, there's the demo stage. Then let's just say you're going to do the song. Then you go into the recording studio, the big studio, and everyone's going to play on it. And you go in with high hopes and you go in with a song X thinking, oh yeah, that's going to be the one. But you have song C over here. And as, you know, things would transpire and you would have it all of a sudden the song that you just didn't see coming starts becoming you know this whole different thing it just comes to life and so in the translation in the execution and with everyone contributing their input uh songs take on a life of their own and what you would expect to have been a hit may end up being you know just a, an album cut if you will a deep cut as they often say and a song that you wouldn't see coming ends up being the single so it, it's a constant evolution and and nothing is for sure until the, the album is well i would consider it until it's mastered you know and and released you know so there are often times that you know you're finishing a record and somebody comes up with an idea that ends up you know, turning into their biggest single. You know, there's the story of um, one thing, uh, for example, Pour Some Sugar on Me. Um, I recently heard, and this is a, you know, a story that Def Leppard's talked about, where they had the riff and just kind of the idea of the chorus. And they built from that in the studio. So you can go from like a riff and one line to all of a sudden, you know, you've got, oh, now you've got a verse and a chorus. And now you add a bridge and a, maybe a, a musical section and a solo and, you know, voila, right? You know, yeah. so, you know, um, it's it's a compromise in writing. And uh, when you're in a, a band structure, you sort of have to um, cooperate in what's best for not just the song, but the band in general. Right. Mm -hmm. And that often and I'll stop, but that often can lead to um, other writers coming in to help. Maybe the band's having a dry spell and they can bring in someone that will sort of spur creativity and have them look in a different direction or or deal with ideas in a way that maybe they hadn't done before. You know, so, you know, creativity can happen anywhere. Uh, of course, I'd rather be riding on a Hawaiian shore than in a hotel in Detroit or, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, you mentioned uh, no writing Detroit. <laughs> yeah. Co-writers. Cause the, the detonator album, didn't Desmond child co-write a lot of those songs? Yes. Yeah. What was it like working with him? He's pretty brilliant. Isn't he as a songwriter? Oh, uh, Desmond is uh, exceptionally talented. No doubt. No doubt. He's a very good writer. And um, it was a joy to work with him. Uh, he's a very nice person. Um, he is very intelligent, actually, you know, um, so it was a pleasure to work with him at that time. The band was at a point where, uh, a lot of things, uh, well, maybe the best way to put it is it was probably, uh, you know, a good time to have taken a break. Mm. Okay. You know, we saw the industry changing. We saw different bands kind of starting to emerge. And um, there was sort of a changing of the guard that 
was in the distance, you know. Um, however, um, you know, uh, it's oftentimes when a band is successful, there is the pressure and the need for the the machine to move forward. Sure. Okay? So uh, taking a break can mean that a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. So maybe you want to wait on that break, Johnny. You know what I'm saying? You know. Yeah. So we embarked upon doing it. And, um, you know, look, um, Desmond did a great job. Uh, Diane Warren did a great job on the ballad. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we did the best that we could at that point in time. And um, it was a different production for us. Um, it was a different yet uh, Arthur Pace. Why did he do it instead of Bo Hill? Well, I, Arthur, who, by the way, was a great uh, engineer and producer, he had a good ear. You know, he would often say, uh, let's say, um, you know, Desmond would have an idea or I'd have an idea. And he'd go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. You just call it right out. You know, uh, that happened when we were doing a song called Love and Use a Dirty Job. Yeah, that's a good song. Where I came up with what ended up being the chorus. Okay. And I did that at a pre-production rehearsal uh, because I felt the song needed something. And and it just came to me. And Arthur was the first guy to go, that really works. Okay. So he was really talented. And a producer can really shape a record. You know, their style, the sounds they get, the way they hear things, the way they feel the arrangements should go and so forth. There's a lot of moving parts. So it, with Arthur working uh, uh, as a teammate with Desmond, it made a great team. They were very, very good and very effective. It was a great record in, in, in many ways, uh, a lot of fun, um, but there were a lot of changes going on. I'm not going to kid you, you know, um, you know, things happen when you have five guys, you know, going through their lives and dealing with their personal things and, you know, the band business and, you know, are they feeling healthy? Are they tired? Do they need a break? You know, there's a lot of things that that sort of have to come together. And there's a confluence of effort that has to occur. And if it doesn't, um, you know, um, if there are certain things that are not there, you can really run into some rocks there. You know, um, you know, it's, right. it's a rocky shore sometimes. Well, exactly. And not, like you said, sometimes you do need a break. And I mean, it's just, there's too many examples of musicians dying way too young because probably they needed a break and they didn't take one. And uh, so I'm glad you guys, you know, made it through that. Obviously, you know, Robin passed and that's, that's a horrible tragedy. Um, but the, yes. you know, the rest of the, the band persevered and uh, that's a good thing. So yeah. It it listen you know it it's uh it's it's uh, a serious business and a lot of folks you know um they they don't see it coming you know uh you know they, you you really have to have a lot of discipline and a lot of focus uh, it's very easy to uh, have fun and have more fun and more fun and then you had so much fun that you find yourself at a place like I don't know the Betty Ford Clinic. You know, because you had too much fun, you know, so there's a certain amount of discipline. And uh, luckily, I had a a very good sense of discipline. And um, the show when we were on the road, for example, was the most important thing. Nothing else mattered. So throughout the day, everything was about preparing for the show. And in, in, in that regard, what I mean is the amount of sleep 
I had, the amount of food I ate, uh, the amount of water that I drank, everything was gearing towards that show. Because for me, as active as uh, I was and 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 kind of am still, um, the stage performance required a lot of energy. And if I didn't eat four to five hours before the show, three hours wasn't enough time. It had to be four to five hours. Then I would, you know, be in that digestive point where I could perform if there was a certain amount of athleticism there. Sure, you know, yeah. You had to run around on stage. And play and sing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can't compromise really one for the other. You know, yeah. that's really where the skill is. Um, so, um, you know, yeah. So you had to pace yourself because, um, you know, you had a week. And if you had six shows out of seven days that week, boy, right around the time that sixth show would come, there was, <laughs> you know, uh, it was easy and understandable for some folks to phone it in, you know. Hmm. So, you know, I didn't mind having a, a a drink or, you know, going down to the hotel bar after a show and socializing and saying hi to fans and, you know, talking to people. But there was a certain point that you needed to cut it off. Mm. Otherwise, it was going to affect you the next day. And you, you just know. learned that like trial and error, basically? No, I mean, that was pretty easy to figure out from from, uh, you know, uh, you know, just everything that led up to it. Right. Yeah. You know. Uh, you know, early on when you're jamming with some unknown party band, you know, at someone's high school party, you pretty much figured out if you drank, you know, a lot of Heineken or Budweiser's towards the end of the night, you probably weren't playing as well as you did at the beginning mm. of the night, right? You know, yeah. so you, so know, you, you figured that out on early, whereas because oh, I know some bands struggled with that. No, no brainer, no brainer. Yeah. So yeah. it just depended on what your priorities were. And mm -hmm. I, listen, I totally understand that it was, you know, think about this. You work all your life, you know, you, you spend countless hours in some garage or some rehearsal studio perfecting the songs and, you know, band members come and band members go. So you do all this in preparation for someday maybe getting a record deal. Then you get that deal, you release a record, it goes on the air, and you even have a, a, a video that goes along with it. And you kind of feel like, wow, maybe I can celebrate a little bit now. And it's okay to celebrate. It's just that sometimes I found myself going, okay, we're going to have a party, but what's the party for? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's great that we played in Cleveland, but we got a show in, you know, Des Moines, Iowa the next day or what have you pick a city. And, you know, I have to have, uh, you know, my skill set ready to go, you know, so. Um, it sounds like you were able to set limits for yourself, whereas other musicians maybe just didn't see those boundaries for, and they just couldn't say no. Well, and, and listen, let me tell you something that, that often is not addressed that is important musicians are often um sort of you know it's the first time you're playing in that city or you know the first night of the tour in in you know just pick a city fans saying hey can i get you a beer hey you know let's talk and meet my buddies and so all of a sudden you're in this social environment and there's no one to tell you hey 
you know, it's time to go to bed. We got an early call tomorrow. We have a flight to the next city because the bus can't get there in time, you know. And so if you don't have anyone to tell you to, you know, to, you know, pull back a little bit and you're the boss. So no one can really use sort of an authoritative uh, position on you. It's very easy to fall into it. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, like I, I saw the dirt and I saw like, uh, you know, that's just one example, but I think there's a lot of examples like that where people are just, I mean, and especially if you grew up and maybe you, you came from a rough childhood or something, you didn't have that uh, parental figure. And now you just, it's like when kids go to college and they just, they, you know, if they didn't have those uh, limits set that they just go nuts when they don't have anybody to tell them what to do. Yeah. I mean, you find out, you know, you either get it or you don't, or you enjoy it or it's a, or it becomes a priority, but it's kind of like David Lee Roth once said, you know, I used to have a drug problem, but now I can afford them, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, so, you know, that's the other factor, you know, yeah. you got these people that have been struggling and living hand to mouth and, yeah. you know, um, you know, it's not easy to eat top ramen for, you know, a, a certain amount of years. And that be the way that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And, you know, some folks were, you know, sleeping on people's couches, you know, in, in, in the days of trying to make it in Hollywood and break out, you know, there was a lot of um, struggle and there was a lot of dedication and uh, you know, so I could see a cause for celebrating Um while you're actually kind of working to elevate the group. So right. it's definitely a compromise. You had to have discipline. You had to set limits. Uh, and some people could do it easier than others. So to say nothing of, um, you know, what would be considered serious addiction, um, that, you know, it's not, it becomes something that's fun and then it becomes something you need to feel normal. Um, and, and those things, if you're not normal, you're a member of the group. And if you're not okay, that's going to affect the band out on stage. So it's complicated and it's sensitive, you know, because a lot goes into it. Like, you know, your upbringing and, you know, um, your, 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 your base, your base, what you're about, you know? Um, so yeah, a lot can, can go wrong. That's for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you, a lot you've done, you know, a lot went right for you guys and uh, it's, it's amazing uh, career, great box set. Now, what are you up to now? I know you, you mentioned the production uh, studio. So you're producing bands. Are you still playing in a, in a side band or anything for fun? No, look, I've been producing bands for a very long time. I started early in the mid eighties. Uh, one of the first bands that I started producing outside of my own music that I'd produced myself, of course. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, not just recording, but a yeah, sense of production, you know, um, was a band called love hate. So yeah. Uh, yeah, I worked with them early on. Johnny love is one of my dear friends. And um, so I, I have, always had a studio since very early on and and that progressed as i told you like kind of like my refrigerator and freezer did on the road um that was part of my recording studio at home so um i i basically produced many bands after uh rat stopped working in in the early 90s and um that's how i basically earned a living uh and so i i am currently uh 
in my studio working and uh, I've been perfecting certain certain things, uh, changing some equipment and in preparation for my new record. I intend on starting uh, my new record in the very near future and um, I'll be re-releasing my EP because it really wasn't, it came out, it was called Liquid Sunday. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, you yeah. sit and play bass and guitar on this one, right? Yes, yeah. And um, I basically play everything but the drums. My brother Rick played the drums on it, and I engineered it and produced it and mixed it and so forth. I mean, I just did it myself. So um, the problem is, is that I had a band at the time, so I wanted it to represent the band. Hmm. Okay the music that we were going to be doing live. However, like many bands and many musicians, you know, you know, you, you start with an idea, you think it's going to work. It doesn't, you double back, you come up with something new and you move on. So it really is a solo record. So I'm changing the artwork to reflect the fact that it's a solo record. So I'll be releasing that soon in the near future. And then, you know, my recording output is going to increase. But the thing about owning a, a studio uh, is that there's a lot of things to maintain and a lot of things uh, that get outdated and new technology comes along. You know, uh, of course, Pro Tools is a very popular form of uh, the technology that has changed the recording industry in many ways. Um, you know, so I've been um, making a lot of, it's been a process. Uh, I repaired my console recently and, and, you know, it's a very large format console. So it required a lot of work. And when you're one guy doing it all, it's just very time intensive, you know, sure. and I'm, you know, I have a family also, so my time is not unlimited. You know, and then you have a group like Rat and, and so forth that takes a lot of time when when it's working. And so I have to sort of, um, you know, be aware of time management. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, but um, I am ready to go. I have some songs that I love uh, that I'm very, very um, uh, hopeful for, you know, um, and so, uh, yeah, you know, to me, being an artist is uh, multifaceted and depending on what your skill set is, you know, you can do, uh, certain things, uh, that, um, you know, sort of advance your cause, um, you know, and so I'm really looking forward to, uh, recording my new record and, um, okay. I've got a, I've got a band and, um, you know, I've had the band for, I believe 26 or seven years or various incarnations. Okay. And, and so, you know, uh, we are working away and we're going to uh, begin uh, performing again. And uh, so, you know, it, I love the industry. I love music. I love the art, you know. So, um, you know, for me, it's not about, um, you know, money's important. Okay. We all need to make a living. But at sure. a certain point, what you're doing is is also very important, right? Mm -hmm, absolutely yeah well you have to come back or when that record's out you want to do promotion for that otherwise uh the box set is out now and then yes. i always end um each episode promoting a charity is there a charity that you want to uh, mention here that you work with yeah, before? you know what make a wish has done some Great fantastic one. work and i got a little story we had just in the mid 80s we had just finished touring <clears throat> with poison okay and so, you know, we get off the road and I get a call from someone in my management company going, hey, uh, Make-A-Wish reached out to us. And um, and I thought I'd call you. And at first I thought, 
oh, great. Someone, you know, wants to meet me and make a wish is trying to arrange it. And so this is going to be really fantastic because I love giving back. I think it's really important to help others and others in need and folks that are facing, you know, difficult times. So I kind of got my hopes up. And then I got another call the next day. And the person said, yeah, we, we got in touch with them again, and they're looking for a C.C. DeVille's contact information. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, what a shot to the ego. Okay, okay no problem. Here's C.C.'s number. <laughs> so, you know, that's all good. You know, look, C.C.'s a great guy. I love him. You know, Poison's a great band. You know, they've done yeah. so well. So proud of them. And, you know, it, I'm just happy that I could help out. That's all. <laughs> so I, I figured in in memory of that, you know, it's the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Okay, awesome. Well, I'll put that show, uh, link in the show notes along with the link to buy the Rats uh, box set. And then do you have your yeah. own website that people can go on to uh, follow you or just follow? You don't even have social media. Or you have Twitter, I think. Not Instagram, though. No, I, I, I'm not a... Uh, I'm not that active on Instagram. Um, I'm, I've got a website, you know, JuanCruzier.com. I also have another website from my band, which is RatsJuanCruzier.com. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook, Twitter. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot to keep up with, right? There's sure, always yeah, new yeah. things coming, you know. But I try to be easily accessible, and you can find what I'm doing there. Yeah. And I'm going to be posting any updates. And hopefully we're going to have some new shows for the my, my solo band posted soon. So, um, you know, after COVID, a lot of things changed, you know. And a lot of people waited, and then everybody got let out of the gate. And there's a lot of, you know, bands going out, which is great. It's really great to finally be over that. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back out there and and hopefully coming to a town near you soon. Okay, well, if you come to Phoenix, let me know. I'll come see you. Love Phoenix, absolutely. All right, thanks, Juan. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great stuff from Juan Crucier. Check out the new Rat box set. If you're a big fan, you probably already have it. And if you can't afford it, put it on your Amazon wish list. Get it for Christmas or your birthday. Great thing to add to any rock fans collection and make sure to follow Juan and I on social media. You can support both of us by liking and sharing this episode on social media and make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you watch or listen to keep up with future episodes. I've got some great interviews coming up. I appreciate all your support. Have a great rest of your day and shoot for the moon.